as each one of you know, I have tried to really encourage all of you for a long time over the years to read your Bible, and not just read your Bible, but to study your Bible, that you might be like the Bereans in Acts 17, 11. said the Bereans are more noble than those in Thessalonica because they searched the Word of God daily to see if these things were so. They were Bible searchers, and they did it on a daily basis. I can't imagine today where I would be in my life if I had not had a Bible to read and to try to study over the years. The influence this book has had in my life is something that would be hard for me to really grasp. I could just give you 2 Timothy 3.16 this morning uh, to cover you know, these instructions and exhortations and it says all scriptures given by inspiration of God, that within itself ought to be enough to motivate you. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, that's all 66 books, old and new, and they are profitable, that ought to be a, another little added emphasis. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching. If you want to know the truth about a subject, go to the Word of God. No matter what the subject is, go to the Word of God. All relevant subjects are covered in the Word of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction. We need to be reproved. We need to be corrected. We need to be instructed in the ways of righteousness. So listen again. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. Right, that the man of God might be perfect, that is, mature and complete, might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. If you want to know what the good works are that we're to be involved in, the Word of God is a thorough furnisher. It just simply means it's complete. You can't add anything to it to make it better. If you try to take away from it, you'd make it worse. The Bible is complete. It's perfect. And it's an up-to-date book, even though it was completed 2,000 years ago. So I can give you numerous reasons to do it this morning. But I want to approach it from a little different direction. If you only read the New Testament, for example, and you're not an Old Testament writer, your understanding of many, many passages in the New Testament is going to be very limited because so much of the New Testament, in the New Testament, so many references are made to Old Testament material, Old Testament lives. In the book of James, for example, there's only five chapters in James, but in James chapter 2, we have Abraham and Rahab as two examples of the doctrine of justification by works. Now the Bible teaches justification by faith, by works, and by blood. Legally speaking, we're all justified by the blood of Christ. It was His blood that was shed that justified us in the sight of God. And that's complete. That is a finished work, and it's a sure thing. But to have real peace in our own hearts and our own conscience, we need to walk by faith. There's justification by faith we can go into. But that's not our purpose this morning. And then there's justification by works. If you're going to understand what the writer's talking about concerning being justified by works, you're going to have to read in the Old Testament the life of Abraham. And you're going to have to read in the Old Testament the life of Rahab the harlot. And what a contrast between these two people, between Abraham and Rahab. But both of them are examples of being justified by works. David is mentioned 59 times in the New Testament. Moses mentioned 80 times in the New Testament. 
Abraham is mentioned 74 times in the New Testament. Isaac is mentioned 25 times, 20 times. I believe Jacob mentioned 25 times. These are all Old Testament characters. If you go to understand what the New Testament writer is talking about when he records their names, you're going to have to be familiar with their lives and, and all the information given to us over here in the Old Testament, aren't you? How are you going to understand what Peter has in reference concerning Noah and the ark that he writes about in 1 Peter and 2 Peter if you're not familiar with the flood and the ark and Noah that's recorded in the book of Genesis? When you go to the Bible bookstore, which by the way is getting harder and harder to find them, they're closing up like, like you know, all the time. But if you are able to, sometimes they'll want to say you just a New Testament or maybe the New Testament plus the book of Psalms. But that's not a complete Bible. A complete Bible is 66 books, 39 in the old, and 27 in the new. And when Paul said all scriptures given by inspiration, that's what he had under consideration. Not just the New Testament, but rather the entire Bible, old and new. So in order to understand in depth the New Testament, you're going to have to be an Old Testament reader. And there's so much of that Old Testament that uh, I understand is kind of, kind of difficult at times. There are certain passages back there, but there's a purpose for it. And you just be patient. You just read it. It'll, it'll be profitable for you in time. But having said all that, I want to go to the opening verse of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. Where the writer says, wherefore, or therefore, seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that does so easily beset us, looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down the right hand of God. Now Paul presents the idea of the Christian life as being a race. When he said, let us run this race with patience, he's talking about the Christian way of living. The Bible clearly teaches how God's people ought to live. God's people ought to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Instructions are clear how the Lord's people are separating themselves from this world in which we live and be a separate people. And he says, and then I, I will receive you. It's the life of discipleship. It's the kind of life that you would live that if somebody knows you, they wouldn't hesitate and say, well, that's a Christian man and that's a Christian woman. You know, in the book of Acts, in uh, chapter 11, we find the first time the word Christian is used. And we find the disciples were called Christians first in a place called Antioch. Why, why would anybody in Antioch call these disciples Christians? Well, apparently they must have been living differently than a lot of other people were living. And it was clear they believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that Jesus Christ was the promised seed, that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh and God's beloved Son. They must have believed that. They must have been believers of the apostles' doctrine or walking the footsteps of what the apostles were teaching. Apparently they were letting their light shine before men that others were seeing their good works and glorifying their Father which was in heaven. They were living a life separate and apart from this world in which we're living here. And somebody said, well, you know, we just need to call them Christians. They're followers of a man named Jesus Christ. The word Christian is only used three times in the Bible. That's, that's pretty interesting to me as well. And here's the first time. And the disciples actually didn't call themselves Christians. It was others who were around them that observed them that gave them this, this tag, this label. And they were called Christians first at Antioch. Now it's getting more and more challenging and difficult for people of all ages 
to live the kind of life I've just been describing right here. Seems like the world is closing in. It is making people think, you know, it it just would be a crime to try to bring a child up in this atmosphere, I mean, this environment in which we're living here. I remember having those same thoughts before we ever had our first child. I had those thoughts, I remember it. But when I read the writings of men in the early 1900s, back in the 1800s, I read comments made by people back then about what I just said. They viewed the world that was around them as being ungodly, wicked, and evil. And just having great concerns what their children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren are going to have to face in their lifetime. Uh, don't think, I am very concerned about those kind of things. But my forefathers are concerned about those words. So what does that tell me? That tells me those who try to live godly and follow Jesus Christ and walk in the footsteps of discipleship, my friends, or the Savior, have always had these concerns because they can see the great contrast between the Christian life and the ungodly and the wicked and the evil that they face on a daily basis. But nevertheless, we, we have the commandment to run a race. And this wasn't just given to first century Christians. It was given to God's people of every generation, every century since then. This Bible is just as up to date today as it was when they first read it back there in 100 A.D. Therefore, seeing we can pass, that means to be encircled, to be surrounded by. Wherefore, seeing we are encompassed or compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run this race. We're to run it with patience. And we lay aside every weight. There are things that hinder us in running this race. We need to recognize what they are, and we need to remove them from our lives. And these sin that does so easily beset us, which people in general are pretty, this is pretty much of a consensus, that this sin that does so easily beset you and set, besets me and any of God's children is a sin of unbelief. That the devil will come along and, and, and try to place in your mind and plant in your mind all kind of things contrary to the word of God that eventually bring doubts in your own mind. So those are things, if we're going to run this race, we've got to run it with patience. We've got to lay aside every weight that does so easily, and the sin that does so easily set us, looking unto Jesus. But I want to take a look at what it says in the beginning of this verse here. Seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, I want to emphasize and underline the word great here this morning. So great, these are not just witnesses. These are great witnesses. And you know who these great witnesses are? Every single one of them are Old Testament characters. If you don't read the Old Testament, Hebrews chapter 11 is not going to mean a lot to you. Who was Abel? Who was Enoch? Who, who was Noah? Who was Abraham and Sarah and I, uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses? Who were these people? Well, if you don't read the Old Testament, you're not going to know who they were. These are all Old Testament. There are 16 names given to us in Hebrews chapter 11. But these names are these people and the acts that they performed. And they didn't, the Lord didn't have, them, have Paul write down everything they did. But he picked certain things out. So if he picked them out, man didn't pick them out. God picked them out. They must be important as a way of encouraging me to be steadfast, to encourage me to stay on, on, on the right road, to stay in the straight and narrow way. So if I'm going to run this race with patience, I need to look at these witnesses that surround me, who the Bible says they are great witnesses. They were human. They were real. They were real people 
living in a real world with real problems, real challenges, real difficulties and trials and tribulations they went through just like we do today. Those who tried to follow God in every century since the beginning of time have faced many of the same problems. So let's see what he says here about some of these. It's pretty amazing when you just take your time. He says, for Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Well, who in the world was Abel? Abel was the second son born to Adam and Eve. Cain was number one. But Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice than Cain did, bearing witness that his, to the righteousness that was in his life. You go back and look at that, you'll see the two offerings made to these two boys. You got Cain, you got Abel. Cain was a tiller of the ground. He brought forth the fruit of the ground. He brought forth that which was uh, uh, of his own hands, of his own works. But we find that Abel brought forth a sacrifice of an animal. He was a keeper of sheep. He brought a sacrifice of a lamb. A death had to take place. Blood had to be shed. Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Both offered a sacrifice, but Abel's was more excellent than that of Cain. It was a sacrifice of faith also. Abel, uh, Cain, excuse me, uh, Cain, his sacrifice was not one of faith. He didn't have any faith. Study his life, he had no faith. Abel had faith, God-given faith. That's the only faith anybody can have is a God-given faith. So Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice than that of Cain, testifying that he was righteous. This offering, this sacrifice was an evidence of the righteousness that he had. And he says, Enoch was translated. He was not found because God translated him. Now, Enoch's kind of interesting life. I go back and read his life in Genesis chapter 5. And you have a list of, of, of the people that lived back in that day. And you'll, you'll find in that list how old they all were. Like Adam lived 930 years. Well, the oldest man was Methuselah, lived to be 989 years old. You know who his father was? His father was Enoch. Enoch lived 365. He died a young fellow. At 360, well, excuse me, he didn't die, but his life ended at 365 years. His earthly journey ended at 365 years. He didn't die. He was translated. He was uh, 65 years old when he had Methuselah, and then he walked with God 300 years, the Bible says. And he had this testimony. He had a testimony that he walked with God. Now, the very next verse says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh God must believe that he is and reward of them that diligently seek him. That verse is in the context of talking about Enoch. Enoch just didn't live 365 years. He lived 365 years by faith. He lived at least 300 of those 365 years walking with God. And you can't walk with God if you don't please God, and you can't please God if you don't have faith. So this expression, without faith is impossible to please God, is in connection in the context of Enoch's life. So Enoch walked by faith at a time when this world, <laughs> uh, you know, became, was becoming more and more ungodly as time continued, and that's why God sent the flood. So that's pretty interesting to me. He was translated. God, it was God's purpose to take him. He was not found. That just simply means after he was translated, people went looking for him. <laughs> One day he's here, the next day you can't find him. You know why they couldn't find him? Because he was translated. God took him and God translated him and took him into glory. 
And there'll be some of God's people in the end of time, in the last day, that'll be translated, will not be resurrected, they'll be translated because they'll be alive at the second coming of Christ. And they'll be like Enoch, they'll be translated, they'll just be changed, and they won't go through the experience of death like all those who have, that have gone before them. Now, I don't expect to do the things that's recorded here in this 11th chapter of Hebrews. But they did, and they're examples for us to encourage us in running this race that we might run it with patience, laying aside you know, every weight and these sin that does so easily beset us. Then he says, Noah, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not yet seen, moved with fear to the preparing of his house and the saving of his household. Now God warned Noah. And he warned there's a flood coming, and Noah had never seen a raindrop. He did not say that Noah believed God, but I believe he did. But it says he moved the fear to the preparing of a house or the ark to the saving of his household. He did exactly what God told him to do. Build an ark. Nobody had ever built an ark before. He'd never seen a ship. He'd never seen a boat. He'd never seen a John boat, row boat, any other kind of boat. He never certainly seen an ark. God gave him instruction to build something like he'd never seen before. He moved moved the fear. He did exactly what God told him to do. And guess what? He and eight people on that ark all survived. And that ark was built exactly and prepared for eight people. Not any more than that. Sometimes you see scenes where people are clawing at the door trying to get in. That is not true. You have no biblical scene whatsoever like that. You do not have Noah preaching unto the humanity back then and trying to get them to come on the ark. That ark was prepared for Noah and his family for eight people and no more. Eight people went on that ark and eight people came off that ark. The rest of the human race perished in the flood. Noah and his family lived on both sides of the flood. I'd say that's a pretty great witness, wouldn't you? So far, I can understand why he put uh, Abel in there, and I understand why he put Enoch in there. I can understand why he put Noah in there. Then it says, Abraham, when he was called to go into a land which he knew not, obeyed. (laughs) Obeyed. And he went into a land whether he had never been to, never seen before. And then he says, by faith, he sojourned in that land, dwelling in tabernacles along with Isaac and Jacob, his son and his grandson. And he looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And everything said about these witnesses that's great back here, they're totally different. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, God called Abraham when he was living in a land that was filled with idolatry, the land of the earth of the Chaldees. His own father was, when you put it all together, you find his own father practiced idolatry. But God, in his sovereign, by his sovereign grace and sovereign power, reached down and called this man who was called at that time Abram and told him to get out of that land to a land that I will show thee. And Abraham obeyed. He obeyed by faith. He went into a land he'd never been to, never seen. You know, if I'm going to go somewhere I've never been before, I usually try to read up on it, one thing or another, try to you know, be prepared as I possibly can. Abraham didn't have the means to do all that. He obeyed. He, he traded the certainty for the uncertainty. He traded for the, the, the unseen for the, uh, for the seen, or the seen for the unseen. That's what walking by faith is. 
And that's what Abraham is doing here. And then he said, look for a city that hath foundations, that's in the plural, foundations whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't looking for natural Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. He wasn't looking for some other city. He had a different city in mind as he was sojourning, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob. What does that mean, dwelling in tabernacles? A tabernacle is a temporary structure. Abraham never did put down roots and have a permanent place to stay. He was dwelling in tabernacle, moved from one place to another. In other words, he was picturing his life now as a pilgrim and a stranger, which is mentioned a little bit later on. Foundations. How important are foundations? What are these foundations of this city? Remember, the builder and maker of this city is God. Well, in the book of 2 Timothy 2.19, it says, The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. I believe one of the foundations of the city is God's elect in love. I believe one of the foundations of this city is God's everlasting love. I believe one of the foundations of this city is the perfection of the offering sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made one offering forever on behalf of those whom the Father gave him. Wherefore, for one offering he hath perfected forever them that thou hast sanctified. I believe that's one of the foundations of this building right here. These are foundations. Over in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, there's 12 foundations to this glorious city. And the names of the 12 apostles are in these foundations. If you look in the last part of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For you no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with the household of faith, built upon the foundations of the apostles, the prophet Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, By the grace of God that's given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. And another man buildeth thereupon. And no other foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's your foundation. He looked for a city that had foundations. This building here has a foundation. You, uh, you know, I've said before, the foundation is the most important part of the building. That's what the Lord said when he closed off the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I like that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when the winds blew and the rains came, the house stood. That rock was his foundation. But he says, I like that man who heareth my sayings and doeth them not to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the wind blew and the rain came, the house didn't stand. His foundation was sand. Foundations are important. They determine the size of the building, the shape of the building, and the strength of the building. He looked for a city that hath foundations. Not foundations laid by men, but foundations laid by God. I believe the written, inspired, preserved word of God is a foundation. Satan's been trying to destroy this book, destroy this word, since the very beginning of time in the Garden of Eden. It's a foundation thing. I can tell you, uh, the Lord's city... You know, Isaiah 26, 1, he said, In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation is God appointed for walls and bulwarks. A city is only as strong as the foundation in which it rests. Well, the builder and maker of this city is God. And Abraham, by faith, was looking for it. Then he says, Sarah, his wife, by faith she conceived seed at 90 years old. By faith she conceived seed and brought forth a child because she was persuaded that he which had promised was able to perform that which he had said. 
I know that's, that's something that's mentioned oftentimes in preaching, but uh, I'm not sure we totally grasp the significance of all that. Sarah is 90 years old. God has made a promise to Abraham when he was 75 that through him and his seed all the nations there should be blessed, shall be blessed. 75. Ten years goes by, and Sarah, she gets a little impatient. They hadn't had a child. Abraham's 85. So she brings her handmaid Hagar into the scene. And they have a child by Hagar, and Abraham is 86. His name is Ishmael. But God's not going to recognize that. He, said, he says, I will, uh, through thee, uh, all the nations there shall be blessed through thy seed. And it was not Ishmael, it was going to be Isaac. So at 90 years old, God now comes to them and promises them to have a child. And you're going to find that Abraham, when he has his child, is 100 years of age, and Sarah is 90. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Being not weak in faith, Abraham considered not his own body now being dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. It was an impossibility for them to have children. Now, without reading Hebrews 11, 11, I might not have the proper view of Sarah that I have now. Hebrews 11 says, By faith she received strength to conceive seed and to bring forth this son. Name is Isaac. That gives me a little different picture of Sarah when I read this over here. That's a great witness, isn't it? That's a great witness. In other words, Abraham and Sarah both believed they were going to have a son at 90, 100 years of age by faith. And they did. They called his name Isaac. Isaac's one of about uh, eight people in the Bible, that God gave a name for a child before the child was ever born. God gave the name. Ishmael, Isaac, Solomon, Josiah, John the Baptist, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's six of them. He gave the parents the name of the child before the child was ever conceived and was born in this world. By faith, these things took place. All right, read the next verse after that about... Uh, in verse 12 here in Hebrews 11, concerning Sarah by faith conceiving seed, it says, Now by him, that is one who being good as dead, good as dead, he was alive, but he was dead as far as being able to have children, being as good as dead, sprang forth one, of which now we have as many as the stars of heaven and sand of the seashore. You read Genesis chapter 12, you got two people. You got Abraham and you got Sarah. You come over here to Exodus chapter 12, 13, and 14 when Israel comes out of the land of Egypt. You know how many they got now? At least a million and a half. Two people, million and a half over here. <laughs> it all started with Isaac when Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90. Wherefore, Seeing we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. He says, now, these all died, having not obtained the promises, but having seen them afar off. We're talking about seeing by the eye of faith. Having not obtained them, but having seen them afar off. And being fully persuaded, he says, they believe these things, they embrace them, and confess they were pilgrims and strangers here in this world. A stranger. Somebody away from home, a pilgrim on a journey. 
That's exactly what God's people are. Never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of that. It's so important to recognize that. If, if you lose sight of that, you'll get too attached to this world in which you're living here. Then he comes back to say some more things about Abraham. He says, and by faith, Abraham offered up his only begotten son, Isaac. He's referring to an event recorded in Genesis chapter 22. Now, how am I going to get the fullness out of what he's going to say here if I don't go back and read Genesis chapter 22? I got to go back and read Genesis chapter 22. It's referred to also in James chapter 2. I got to go back to Genesis 22 and read the life of Abraham here when the Bible says God tempted Abraham and told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, to a mountain that I will show thee. And that's exactly what he did. Now let's just imagine what Abraham must have been thinking if we could possibly just maybe do it a little bit. He's, he's well over 100 years of age now. Isaac, without question, is probably a young teenager. And now God, who gave him Isaac when he was 100 years of age, this miraculous child, says, I want you to take this child, and I want you to take him up to a mountain, and I want you to offer him there on top of that mountain, and I'll show you which mountain to do it on. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 22 that Abraham, looking afar, rose early in the morning. I know if you like me, I don't mind rising early in the morning if I got something I really anticipate doing that I think I'm going to enjoy. Abraham rose up early in the morning to offer his son on an altar. He took some men with him. He says, you tarry here while I and the lad go yonder and worship and returned thither. He believed both of them was coming back. He didn't understand it, but he believed both of them was coming back. So he gets on top of that mountain, and there's the altar, and he takes his son Isaac, which he never could at his age, he never could have gotten Isaac on that altar if Isaac had not been in submission to the father. That's an important point in this. Isaac, who had a miraculous birth, is a picture of the new birth that every one of God's people experienced. But right here, he's a picture of the elect family of God, or the Lord Jesus Christ, actually, at this point. As the Son is submissive to the Father, so the Lord Jesus Christ, we left heaven, came in this world to be submissive to the Father's will. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And so the Son comes into this world knowing ahead of time when he comes into this world that he's going to wind up hanging upon a cross with nails in his hands and nails in his feet and a sword piercing his side and his forehead and his head being pierced by a crown of many thorns. He knows all that ahead of time, but he's totally submissive to it. Isaac's totally submissive. If Isaac had resisted, Abraham would not have had the physical strength to abound him on that altar. But he puts him on the altar because Isaac is willing to be submissive to the will of his of his father. And he draws back his hand to slay him. And God speaks to him. He says, Abraham, Abraham, stay thy hand. And he hears, and he looks behind him, and there caught in the bushes, a ram caught in the bush with, in the thicket by its horns. That, that ram wasn't there to begin with. I'm totally convinced about that. And so now he takes Isaac off the altar, and he takes a ram and puts him on the altar. That's Isaac is a picture of you, a picture of me being released because the Son of God was willing to take our place. The Son of God is willing to go to Calvary. The Son of God is willing to lay down his life. The Son of God is willing to make his life an offering, a sacrifice to the Father because he knows my sacrifice wouldn't be sufficient. 
How am I going to offer to God a sacrifice of my life and expect that to be sufficient for me to go to glory? Ain't going to happen. And neither is yours. But if God sees me through Jesus, then my hope is bright. If God sees me through Jesus, I'm telling you, uh, I can anticipate one day leaving this old world and being with the Lord in glory because if he sees my life through Jesus, he sees perfection. He sees holiness and righteousness and perfection. Not in me, but in Jesus. And Jesus represented me, you see. It said, Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith did this, accounting that God was even able to raise him from the dead from which he received him in a figure. In other words, what he's saying here is if he had actually slain Isaac, he knew God could raise him from the dead to fulfill his promises. These are great witnesses. These are not just witnesses. When I get discouraged, when I get cast down, and, uh, and I'm fully persuaded a lot of people feel like the preacher never gets discouraged, never cast down because they think he lives so close to the Lord that that couldn't happen. <laughs> I believe this morning that the pastor of the church becomes more discouraged during, during, his, during time than anybody else does. He lives and dies with the congregation. He's interested in every single individual person in the congregation. And a good pastor keeps his eyes on the congregation. When I get home today, I can tell you exactly who all was here, and I can tell you exactly who was not here. I won't miss it. Many times. Hardly ever. I try to do my best to keep up what's going on in your life without meddling. <laughs> I try to. And there's, when God's people are faithful and dedicated, and when they show up to the house of God on a regular basis, why, that makes the pastor feel great. Every field seats an encouragement, every empty seats a discouragement. Not exactly how I got into this, but I'm in it to it now. <laughs> he, his desire is to see God's people grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. His desire is to see God's people show a genuine interest. In, and that's seen, my friends, by filling your seats in the house of God, by being regular, consistent, being uh, assembling yourselves together as a manner of, you know, uh, the Lord's people shouldn't do so. Discouragement, cast down. When I get in that kind of condition, when I start reading Hebrews chapter 11, my spirits begin to come up a little bit. They start coming up a little bit. And I realize, hey, I got a race to run. I can't get sidetracked. I got a race to run. I, I, I got a, you know, I got a journey that's in front of me. I got a race to run here. And uh, I've got to do the very best I can. You know, we have a, have a, I used to be, we'd have a special meeting, one thing or another, in years past, still do it to some extent. And I'd go home and I'd say, I wonder where so and so was tonight. You know, I wonder where they were at. Uh, you know, they, they're missing. And Karen says, Listen, you cannot let that take the joy away from your life. You did the best you could. You announced the meeting, planned the meeting, encouraged everybody, one thing or another. That's all you can do. So I have to work real hard not to let an empty seat pull my joy down. 
I, I can't tell you how, how my joy went up this morning. I walked in and seen Sister Carol and Brother Terry Brown here. I'm, I'm telling you, just a few weeks ago, I had doubts that they'd make it back. I did. I had my doubts they'd make it back. To see her here this morning is a testimony of God's power. I can tell you, if you didn't see Sister Carolyn a few weeks ago, you don't know what I'm talking about. Just take my word for it. Every time she takes one step forward, something happens, she'd have to take two steps backwards. But here she is in the house of God today. That requires desire, that requires determination. Above all things, it requires God's blessings upon her and, and her and Brother Terry to be here on this occasion today. And even the links. I, I, I don't like usually like to point people out. I'm afraid I'll miss somebody, overlook somebody, and I don't want to embarrass anybody. But man, I'm, I'm telling you, uh, Sister Carolyn Brown to me this morning is, is like one of these great witnesses. Again, I don't want to overlook anybody. By faith... Abraham believed God was able to raise his son from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed both Jacob and, jo uh, and, um, uh, Jacob and Esau. You go back and read those two blessings, by the way. This is one where Jacob, you know, flipped in and got in front of uh, Esau. Well, when Esau came, uh, Isaac did bless him, but his blessings were mainly temporal and earthly, where Jacob's blessing pronounced upon him was spiritual and heavenly. And then you got Joseph. By faith, Joseph, oh, Jacob, brother. You got faith, by faith, Jacob, Jacob blessed both the sons of Joseph. And then it says, while Jacob was a dying, he worshiped God and leaning upon his staff. You know how old Jacob is here? 147. 147. He knows he's about to leave this world. What's he doing in his last moments? He's leaning on his staff for support and he's worshiping God. By faith. By faith, Joseph. Two things about him. By faith, Joseph made mention of God visiting his brethren in the future and taking them out of Egypt, which he did. Then he gave commandment concerning his bones, not to leave his bones in Egypt. Joseph died at 110. He spent 93 years, about 110 years, in the land of Egypt, but he knew that was not home. He says, when I die, you get my bones out of here. When they, God visits you, you take my bones out of there. Here. And when Moses came and delivered them, he got uh, Joseph's bones and took them out of there. And Joseph buried them over there in the land of Canaan in the family burial place, along with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, Rebekah, Leah. That's where they was all buried. That's where they buried Joseph. And then we come to Moses. By faith, Moses. You know, I look at this as a medley. You know, sometimes a person will get a song together and be made up of various parts of other songs. They just make it one song, maybe 10 songs in it. Well, that's kind of what this is here. It's a medley. Of these Old Testament characters who did things that's referred to uh, as being great exploits. And Paul here says they're great witnesses. Not just witnesses, they're great witnesses to us. They were not superhuman people. They were people who walked by faith and God blessed them to do incredible things, you see. By Moses, uh, his parents are mentioned here. When Moses was born, by faith, his parents, uh, when they recognized he was a goodly child, they hid him after three months. And then Moses, by faith, when he came to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
It says, uh, choosing to suffer the afflictions of the Lord, people enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the approach of Christ greater riches than those treasures in Egypt. And then by faith, we find Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he should smoke the firstborn, you know, would pass by them. He did that by faith. Um, I was thinking about that actually a little bit earlier this morning. It's easy to preach the upper part of that. By faith, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By faith, Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God, then enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. Those are great things in Moses' life. But then it comes down and says, by faith he kept the Passover. What was the Passover? God said, take the blood, put it on the side post and the lintel, and when I pass through at midnight, I'll pass over, and the firstborn of all the Israelites shall be spared. He did just what God told him, and he done it by faith. He believed. If he took the blood of that animal, put it on the side post and the lintel at midnight, all the firstborn would be spared. He believed that. By faith he did that. And by faith he... He uh, feared not the king when he fled Egypt. He feared not the king. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. How do you see somebody invisible? <laughs> but the eye of faith God gives you. I've never seen the Son of God, but I believe he's just as real as me looking at you here this morning. I believe the Son of God is on the right hand of the majesty on high. I believe he's making intercession for me. I believe the Son of God died for me. I believe he put, shed his blood for me. And I've endured a lot of things in life as seeing him who's invisible. It says, in by faith, they crossed the Red Sea on dry land, it says. And the Egyptians that tried to follow them were all consumed by the Red Sea. Two great walls of water came down, took, took care of the enemy. Then I want you to know something really important here. The next thing it said, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. What happened here? We went over 40 years of history that nothing mentioned. You know why? You know what the difference was between crossing the Red Sea and Jericho's walls falling down? No walk of faith. They spent 40 years in the wilderness because of unbelief. You skip over that. Nothing recorded there about great faith, right? Nothing recorded there. But once they crossed Jordan's River and got over there in Canaan's land, there's this great fortified city called Jericho, and the walls of that city came tumbling down. After seven days, we walked around it. They went around it for seven days, doing what God said. On the seventh day, they blowed the trumpets, my friends. I'm telling you, the walls just come tumbling down, just like God said that they would. And they took that fortified city in Jericho, gave them great encouragement to keep marching and conquering the land of Canaan. All that by faith. Now I'm going to read the next passage to you here. By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and of Samson and Jopte and of David and Samuel and the prophets. He said, if I had more time, he said, I could tell you things about these people. I could tell you things about David. One that he'd write about Goliath in there. He said, I'd tell you about David. I'd tell you about Samson. I'd tell you about Jephthah. I'd tell you about Barak. I'd tell you about Samuel and all the other prophets. I could tell you some things about them. But it's like he was running out of time. Reminds me of, of myself. Sometimes I'm running out of time. 
listen to this, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead and raised to life again. That happened in the life of Elijah and Elisha. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Well, what's a better resurrection? A better resurrection is a resurrection where you're not going to die again. The women in Elijah and Elisha's day, a son, uh, two sons were resurrected, but they died again. I'm looking for a better resurrection. I'm looking for a resurrection. My body comes out of the grave. I ain't dying again. Okay, I'm not dying again. Or well, one time is going to be sufficient for me. I'm not going to die again. That's a better resurrection, isn't it? And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging, yea, more with bonds and imprisonment. I hope you're paying close attention. Listen to this. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. This world was not worthy of people like this. This world is not worthy of people like David and Moses and Sarah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Enoch and Noah. Abel. This world's not worthy of people like that. But I'm thankful that this is recorded for me. And when I read their lives and recognize these are witnesses, these are great witnesses, what they were able to do by faith, through faith, and by faith, that encourages me. I don't ever plan to build an ark. <laughs> you plan on building an ark? I don't think God's going to ask me to take one of my three sons and take him on top of a mountain and offer him. I don't think God's going to ask me to do that. I don't think I'm going to be asked to do what Moses did, what Rahab the harlot did. I don't think I'm going to be asked to do those things. I, maybe I it might be. I don't think I am. But there's going to be things that God has asked of me, has asked of you, that you can do it by his power and by his grace and his might. And here's great examples of that to encourage you to keep on the, the pathway, to keep running this race with patience, this Christian race, this race of discipleship. They get so difficult day by day when you see what's going on in the world here, what the world is throwing at us. On a, a, every single day comes... <laughs> It's unbelievable what you hear and what you see and everything that's going on here. And sometimes you might be uh, discouraged to the point where the devil comes along and says, hey, ain't no need to keep on the fighting. Uh, the war's over. The devil's going to win. He's not going to win. Run this race with patience. Looking unto Jesus. The author and finish of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Look what he endured for the joy that was set before him. What kind of joy was that? I believe it was the joy of redeeming his children. I believe it was the joy of rescuing his bride. I believe that was the joy of saving his, king, his church, his elect family. 
I believe that was a joy that he knew was going to take place. We made that perfect offering and sacrifice and his people would go free and one day he could bring him all the way into heaven and immortal glory. That brought joy to the life of Christ and enabled him to endure the things that he faced here in this world. The Lord Jesus Christ ran a race, didn't he? And I'm telling you, he finished the journey. He finished it. Um, <laughs> I think I've said this to you before, but uh, I'll say it again. You've probably forgotten it, I'm sure. If I asked everybody this morning what I preached last Sunday, you probably wouldn't get the right answer. But anyway, I still have to go through Atlanta to get to South Georgia. But you know, I'm still willing to go to South Georgia and go through Atlanta. You know why? Because in South Georgia are some people just like you. And for whatever reason, they want me to come down and preach for them every once in a while. And I think, I got to go through Atlanta to do that. <laughs> I got to go through Atlanta to do that. But you know, the joy of seeing their faces and preaching to them and trying to feed them as a flock of God is so great in my mind, in my heart, I'm willing to drive, go right through Atlanta. And then when the last amen takes place down there, I'm willing to come back through Atlanta because I got you to look forward to to get back here. I got a wife back here. I got children back here. I got grandchildren. The joy on the other side is great enough for me to try to endure what's between me and there. And the Lord, I know that pales in comparison. I hope you can get a little glimpse of what I'm talking about. The Lord Jesus Christ is willing to endure the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him. The Father says, my people need to be saved. You're going to be the Savior. You're going to save my people from their sins. Yes, you'll have to be ridiculed and criticized, and you'll have to be beaten, and you'll have to be scourged, and you'll have to be, ha be hung on a cross, and you'll have to wear a crown of thorns upon your head. And you'll be crucified on that cross between two thieves, but in so doing, you're bringing your people, my people, back home to glory. I'm glad Jesus is willing to do it. Aren't you? I'm, I, I'm glad he was willing to do it. See, when we compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. And the sin that does so easily beset us and run this race with patience. Looking unto Jesus Christ, the author and finish of our faith. I might ask this question in closing this morning. How are you doing in this race? Are you running pretty good? <laughs> Have you slowed down a little on it? <laughs> How are you doing in running this race here? I have to ask myself that every single day. How am I doing? Sometimes I'm not doing so good. I have to run over here and read Hebrews chapter 11. And all of a sudden, I, my pace picks up. My pace picks up. And I'm willing to try to stay on, the, stay on the pathway and keep running this race and get to the finish line with an acceptable discharge in the sight of God.